Hello and welcome to the Behind the Music Business podcast with me, Danny Champion, my little music business podcast where I talk to a whole host of interesting individuals throughout the music business about their start in music, about their current and previous roles, about their motivations within music and about their musings on where music and the music industry is going in the future. This podcast is designed to inform, educate those in the music industry or wanting to get in the music industry. So if you're listening to this and you know of anybody that it could be of interest to, please do point them in its direction. This episode is a very special one. For me, it's with Scott Cohen, uh, current Chief Innovation Officer at Warner Records. I first met Scott whilst he was still running The Orchard, the UK office of The Orchard, and I was a mere intern back in 2007 whilst I was studying my university degree. And I am very, very appreciative that Scott found the time to meet with me. Uh, Scott is a very, very in-demand person uh, who is globe-trotting all over the place, talking to interesting individuals uh, across the music business gamut about the future of the music industry, hence the innovation part of his job title. So I really appreciate him finding the time to have me over to his flat and talk to me about his start in music, about founding The Orchard back in the uh, late 90s, and about all things the future of the music business, which plays a big part in his current role. As always, you really don't want to be listening to me gab on. I'll be back at the end. So here's my chat with Scott Cohen, Chief Innovation Officer at Warner Records. you've been away recently yes. and you're going to be away you're away all the time yeah, I so got kind of back w- two hours ago where 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 have you been I was what have Ita- you been doing I was in Italy yes and I was uh, eating and drinking a bit nice as you do now uh, what, what's today today's Sunday Tuesday I go to Paris mm-hmm. for a meeting and from Paris that evening then I fly down to to Barcelona for the Sonar Conference. Is this your life? This is now. my life. As in just it's been, not just now, it's been my life for a long time. I yeah. travel, travel, travel. Every week, a different city. This week, three or four cities. And do you, jo- I mean, not trying to be a loaded question, but is it something that you enjoy? I don't even know if that question was loaded, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, uh, yes, I love traveling. I love doing what I'm doing. It doesn't mean it's easy or glamorous, mm-hmm. but I'm also not complaining mm-hmm. that, yeah, it's hard, but everything's hard. Welcome to life. There, mm-hmm. There's lots of challenges. So, But it's super interesting because I get to meet incredible people. Um, you know, I learned this a long time ago from my, from my business partner, Richard Goderer. You know, you got to go out in the world, you know, 
you can't just sit in an office and hope people knock on your door and say, hey, I have a new idea. So I'm out traveling the world because I don't know what I'm going to un uncover. You looking for people with ideas. Is that the key to, to your new role that I kind of I wanted to get on? It isn't, to? It isn't the, it's not the key to, actually, maybe it is the key to my role. I was going to say no, but <laughs> it, it's certainly a component of it. Maybe it is the key to it that, that yeah, I, I mean, plus I just have a natural kind of hunger to find out cool shit. Yeah. I want to learn new, new things and you're not going to learn it sitting at home. Mm -hmm. And where's the coolest shit coming from at the moment? Depends what kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's cool shit everywhere. No, I, I, honestly, it, it, it's eye-opening when you travel the world. Mm -hmm. Eye-opening. Um, so I'm in everywhere from Latin America to the Middle East to the Nordics, all over Europe, the States, so sometimes Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you never know because it's not the same. Yeah, that's, right. Maybe that's the big, one of the big takeaways is it's not... What's the one system, the one yeah. thing, the one way we can all do it? And no, it's not that. It's like, ah, look how they do it there. And I think that more than ever is the case. Yeah, now, I, I mean, because we're not, we're not in a place where this is the way to go. I think the music industry especially learned that about 20 years ago that you yeah. can't dictate anymore. It kind of happens around you. A little bit, but, but you know, it's funny. I was in, I was in, uh, Lebanon and Beirut a few weeks ago, which was incredible. Mm. I, it was my first time there. Um, and, you know, the music industry in the Middle East is very different than the music industry in the West. Yep. So if you go Middle East, North Africa, the MENA region, there's 381 million people. So already big, mm -hmm. bigger than Europe. Um, 80% smartphone penetration. And when I say smart, smart-ish phones, because some of them are pretty low end. <laughs> but if we think we're gonna make our money there by you know, subscription audio streaming, we're gonna be hugely disappointed. But everyone's waiting for, you know, there's a local service on Gami, YouTube is there, Spotify is there. You know, it's like, oh, but the numbers Something's are so happening. small. It's like, right, because you're trying to just apply the music industry we know here to there. But do you know how they make money in the music industry in the Middle East? I don't, personally. Private parties. Okay. So there are lots of wealthy people there, and they want to hire the coolest, most credible artists to play their parties, their weddings, their events. So it's not like... So I'm not saying gigging, mm -hmm. not touring, not festivals, and not, I need a cheesy wedding band. Right. It's the exact opposite. So if you're a record company there, your goal is, let's make our artists super cool and popular. So we don't care how much money we make per stream, because then we can get them hired- The private parties. To the private parties. And there's a ton of money in that. Right. And it's just understanding those little intricacies, those yeah. little different ways of people doing it. Yeah. Even before founding The Orchard, kind of Even what, before was your, that, what was your relationship with music um, growing up? 
Well, my relationship with music growing up, first as a you know as a teenager, was absolutely casual, like any other teenager. Of course, I loved music and went to gigs, you know, but I had no aspirations of being in the music industry. Went in any bands? Nope. Or anything like Didn't that? Didn't play an instrument. So I, I, I actually had no interest in being in the music industry. Mm -hmm. I was a casual fan like any number of people. And I had a f some friends that were in bands and I was just kind of giving them some basic business advice like, why don't you do it this way? And they're like, wow, yeah, that's cool. So where did that come from, from you though? I mean, did you have Because I had another company. In that, yeah. so you were, you were kind of using your knowledge and now in just in general kind of thing. Well, yeah, I've it? always been an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can go through a series, hopefully you edit all this crap out, because I could go through a series of me, you know, at different ages starting businesses. Mm -hmm until they got more and more, I don't know, not sophisticated, but at least legitimate. And then, like I said, then I had some friends in bands, and so I was just kind of like, why don't you guys do this? Why don't you try that? And then, I don't know, before I knew it, I think I was a manager of artists. I, okay. I never intended to be. So that's where it started, it yeah. was more kind of managing the acts yeah. rather, than, rather than anything else. Managing. So I, I was managing this band and then I figured I better learn everything. So I went on tour with them and learned how, how that went and little by little. And then, you know, that band never made it very big, but it led me to the next one and mm -hmm. kind of moved up the ladder. Like, and before I knew it, I got a bunch of them signed. And that, that, that's a big deal, you know, particularly back then. So that was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So just getting an advance and commissioning that, just one record deal is like, okay, that's my whole year's salary. I'm yeah, sorted, yeah. you know, 20% of a half a million and like, you're in. Mm -hmm. um, and so that became my full-time profession. And then, then things changed in the, in the 90s. <laughs> um, so this was all in the 80s mm -hmm. and then into the 90s. I was managing this this one act and uh, I think it was EMI somehow connected me with this producer and they were going to sign the band and not, nothing worked out. But that producer, his name was Richard Goderer, became my business partner mm -hmm. and my lifelong friend and, and my great mentor. So although I didn't have uh, any formal education, he ultimately became my mentor. Mm -hmm. um, and he and I started a record label together in 1995. Okay. And I switched out of management and into the label side. Lots of people knew how to run record labels, mm -hmm. just not us. We found something that nobody knew. So it, it was fine that we didn't know either, and it was called the World Wide Web. I don't want to say we stumbled across it, because obviously we were on the web. And what we started doing back in 1995 was, because we were such a shit label, and we didn't get radio and press and any of the things that normal labels get for their artists, yep. Um, we started doing online campaigns. 
1995. We we got a bunch of interns connected to the internet with 14.4 modems, then 28.8 modems, (laughs) and then at one point we got 56K. The dizzy heights. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we had unpaid interns from NYU, and they would go online. It was super expensive back then because you had to pay for the phone line. Every minute you were online, you had to pay. I remember it well. And on top of that, you had to pay for every minute you were online. So you paid for the phone line and your... And you couldn't use the phone at the same time. Correct. That was it. And we had, I think we had four or six phone lines and and 10 interns. So they'd have to go on and off and log on (laughs) and off. But the thing was, they would would go on to AOL, which was how, how we would connect to the internet, America Online. And they'd go into the message boards. And you have to remember the internet back then. No video, no music, no photos. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just text and a few graphics. And so they'd go into message boards where people were talking about music. And if we had a band in the same genre on our label, we could click on that username and we could send that user an email. So it's 1995. So this is this is proper person to person. This wasn't kind of going on the message boards and messaging. No, about no, it. no. It was no. A, I'm actually going to send emails to, to these individuals. Right. So we did one person at a time. Also, and we would send them an email. Also, the CC wasn't invented yet, mm-hmm. so you could only do one at a time. Um, and we would say, "Hey, we we saw you like so and so band. You should check out this one. They're on our label." And in 1995, we got 100% response rate. Every person that received an email responded, thank you. Thanks for sending this. Because it was often the first time they ever received an email. (laughs) And here we're giving them a targeted, relevant marketing message. I'm guessing we're talking about the birth of the orchard here, um, when you kind of started looking at the internet. And you're kind of suggesting that it wasn't a a thought out process of you know that entrepreneurial spirit, spirit of let's see what there is new out there it was kind of we're not really we're trying to do this stuff that everybody else is but not really managing so what else can we do well maybe you say not entrepreneurial but i think that is but, the the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the absolute entrepreneurial spirit it, it's funny i was giving a talk at london business school many years ago to their executive MBA program. And I'm thinking, they think entrepreneurism is creating a business plan and raising money and going out and launching it. I'm like, that's not really entrepreneurism. You know, how about risk your own money, <laughs> you know? Right. Put your own yeah, yeah, yeah. life on the line. And, you know, there weren't there weren't words like pivoting your strategy. <laughs> like we were we started a business entrepreneurs, it wasn't working, so we were trying any possible way to survive. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, nowadays people talk pivots, test and learn, <laughs> like, but that's what, we didn't have yeah, those yeah. words, we didn't have that, that vocabulary, but that's what we were doing. And try this, try that, ooh, this works, wow, this works really well. And so we knew we were onto something with the web. You mentioned a minute ago that you got a hundred percent response rate to those initial emails. One of the things that I wanted to to bring up and 
it was going to be brought up later, but I think it's good thing to bring up now is from the kind of the last 20, 30 years of of seeing the evolution of the internet, of the digitization of the media, what's your opinion on kind of the standard of communications these days? And where is, because I still see the music industry as a little bit old school mm. in places. It's kind of in, the, it's got this one foot in, the old way of everyone wheeler dealing it a little right. bit and every it's all on the phone or it's got to be person it's not right. what you know it's who you know and that sort of stuff and then there's this huge chunk of it that's fast probably overtaking it especially with the younger people coming into it with what they've got around them well they, they, uh, you see i i, I don't I, I don't look at it as either or i think it's it's both it's mm -hmm. all it's both as in if there's two um it's it's like lots of things. It's situational. Now we have options, you know. When I started, the options were you could call somebody, which meant a landline. There was no other kind of call. You could fax somebody <laughs> or you could send them a letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. Those were your three options. Um, all right. Maybe the letter in the mail option still doesn't exist anymore. Fax doesn't exist. But now it's like, sometimes I call them, but usually on a mobile, mm -hmm. but if I'm in the office, I use an office line. I email, I Slack, <laughs> WhatsApp, Messenger, mm -hmm. Zoom, Skype, uh, FaceTime. It doesn't matter, I don't have, so, so for business, any, anything that's appropriate, I do. Mm -hmm. Yes to all. So, so you're, you're seeing it as, because I've had debates, conversations about this, is that there's too many options available or, you know, the, the question that a lot of young um, musicians or people want to get in the music is, you know, how do I get a response? How do I get that? There's so much noise. How, how do they get a response from who? Well, just in general. And that's, like, that's everybody's going to be different. It's no, not going to... You're not going to... How about the starting point? nobody's going to respond mm -hmm. you know it's it's kind of like you know jumping ahead to where we are today which is 40,000 new tracks uploaded to the services every single day mm -hmm. that guarantees nobody is going to pay attention <laughs> if you yes. if the number one way to ensure nobody hears your music today is release it there's so much noise yeah you're not going to get attention by putting out music. It's interesting. It's to the hear you worst. Say that. It's the worst way right now. So what would be that? What's the alternative? <laughs> I'm being a little, you know, provocative about don't put out music. Of course, you should. You should write, record, release music. But what I'm saying is, you should have no expectation that anyone's going to hear it. Right. That that that's the starting point, mm -hmm. and. You have to one by one start to build an audience of people that may care, because the default position for everyone is I don't care. Right. Yeah. Why would I want to hear all that crap? And so it's 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 going back to that one email at a time and it getting, the, getting the hundred yeah. percent responses. Yeah. Because there's no way you're gonna. There is no amount of pushing that's going to get something in front of people today. Mm -hmm. It's got to have some people talking about it. It's gotta, it's gotta have some legs, it has to build. Yeah. And 
you know, I think people got really excited in the internet when things went viral and all of a sudden you did nothing but your song just traveled around the world in a week and mm -hmm. everyone got super excited as if that was a business model. <laughs> yes, um, I always wondered about that. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, you, it, it's why people play the lottery. Because every week somebody wins, mm -hmm. or at least once a month somebody wins that. But I wouldn't suggest that people use that as a financial strategy for their life. Mm -hmm. Just play the lotto. Mm -hmm. And so just putting a song out and hoping somebody's going to write about it, playlist it, get it played somewhere, it's like playing the lotto. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. S start to build something. Yeah. Make people care. One by one. One by one. Maybe. Was there a, a plan at yeah. the beginning? Or yeah. What was that plan? A hundred percent. So, so we start doing these kind of online marketing campaigns in 95. Mm -hmm. And I won't say a light bulb went off. There wasn't some epiphany. But at some point, it became very clear to us, to Richard and me, that if we could send messages, ultimately people would be consuming all kinds of media digitally. We knew that, you know, connection speeds would get faster, that devices would get smaller and, mm -hmm. and portable, and you know, we just could imagine where this was going. It wasn't. It wasn't actually hard to imagine it at at, at a certain point. And so we, we launched The Orchard in 1997, which was the first digital distributor of music mm -hmm. in the world. And I say that <laughs> on one level, super proud. We did something that had never been done before. Everyone takes for granted that you just make some music and you can put it out there. Well, before us, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. There was just no way. So we, we actually created something. With that in mind, maybe we were naive, stupid, or whatever. I don't know what the right word is. But we had two fundamental problems when we launched The Orchard as the first digital distributor of music. One, there were no stores. We weren't distributing to end consumers. Mm -hmm. We imagined this world where instead of having record stores where you'd go onto the high street and buy a, a CD, we imagined the music would be digital and the store would be digital and you would just go there and you could get your music. So and It wasn't for another, what, six, seven years before iTunes? Yeah, iTunes was April of 2003. Yeah. So, again, this was, <laughs> if you go back to 1997 when we launched, even if you could download music, which started to happen in mm -hmm. that period, Napster wasn't until 1999, yeah. but even if you could download music, it was stuck on your computer because the first MP3 player wasn't even launched until September of 1998, the Diamond Rio. Mm -hmm. so, so, all right, in that sense, we were way ahead. So problem one, the, the very thing that we were distributing to didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And number two is we didn't have any catalog anyway. We had no no music. So you, we started a company to digitally distribute music 
to stores that didn't exist with a catalog we didn't have. Were you at that, at that very, very early stage already thinking we need to talk to labels, we need to d provide this service to well, them? No, we, we, we started with artists. Okay. We started with artists because they were desperate enough. <laughs> nice. <laughs> For lack of another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they just, they, 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 they would sign anything because they needed their music out there. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. No. You know, we, they still owned all their rights and we yeah, just yeah. took a percentage of it. Um, but yeah, we signed up, we started signing up artists. It, it was tough. Things started to come together though. I, you know, Napster, although Napster was illegal, what it did was open people's minds to, wow, there's digital music and we can download it. That was already a big step because you had to teach people that music would be consumed digitally mm -hmm. and Napster did it for us, for the whole world. Do you remember speaking to Napster, the Napster guys? There weren't that many of us in the digital music industry back in the day. So everyone knew everyone. Mm -hmm. Even if they were the enemy, everyone yep. knew everyone. Um, so we were definitely right in the center of it. And, and, and yeah, it was, it was a special time, you know, looking back, you know, in a nostalgic way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an amazing time that the future was just writing itself in real time and, and nobody could get their he heads around it. From, from well, although although I, uh, we, had our, we were very clear which way it was going. Well, one of the things that I'm quite interested here about is, is very, very forward-thinking company, very forward-thinking, just looking at a business in a very forward-thinking way, maybe even too forward-thinking. But that was a problem. A year, we were too a year ahead. Do you? That's not possible anymore. Do you think? Just oh, it's absolutely possible. Yeah. So we we still get very much ahead of yourself, even though technology and things are moving that much quicker. Well, than when they we get were. into, it, I don't know where we're going with this talk, but if we get into what my role is today, you, you'll see it's very much getting way in front of okay. things. You know, it, put it this way: if 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 it was a challenging 10 years for the music industry, maybe more mm -hmm. from, yeah, from like 99, 2000, yeah. you know, that, that was the height of the music industry in terms of revenue. And from there, yeah. it started taking quite a steep decline. Um, and so it was a lot of pain, but it didn't have to be. I mean, that's the point. Mm -hmm. When I say I started doing this stuff in 95, I mean, it wasn't a secret that the World Wide no. Web existed. Yeah. It was not a secret. And certainly by the time Napster came on the scene in, in 99, which, which the real, even before Napster, it was mp3.com, Michael Robinson. Most yep. people have somehow forgotten him, but he was really the pioneer. Yes, it wasn't quite legal, but he understood it as well. Um, and, and, and so, we went through 10 years of unrelenting pain in the music industry, but we didn't have to. So then imagine the music executives when, when you then say, now we're gonna be streaming music. And they're like, what the fuck? I just got my head around a 99 cent download. We finally are starting to stabilize. We're still dropping, but we're stabilizing. Mm -hmm. And now you want me to go from 99 cents to 0. 0.0000 and yeah, what? Yeah. And they're like, are you fucking crazy? And so there was probably three years of pushback. Okay. Not 10. Right, yeah. What I would like 
for this next phase is to move into the next phase and phase and nobody notices the change. Okay. Then then I'll know I've been successful. Right. And that the industry's been successful, you know. If we get it right this next time, it, it it'll be smooth, you know. When was the last time you logged into MySpace? Don't know. But there was a time you used to log in and then there was a day you didn't and never did again. And like these things just happen and mm -hmm. you don't, and you look back oh you're right. Hmm. That's that's how I want this next phase of the music industry to go. Smooth, and then we look back and we remember, ah, oh, remember when it was all about subscription, audio streaming, and YouTube, and social media, remember those days? Because it'll yeah. change. Was it difficult decision to step away from it? No, no. So, 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 go, go, going back just a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. So, ninety-seven, we launched the Orchard. We already talked about, you know, what was happening in the time. Yep. You know, so you have to remember then if you know that there was no stores and we had no catalog, and it was years away till the iTunes store launched, you'd go, well, then how the fuck did you make money? And the answer is we didn't. We didn't take in any investment. We got so ridiculously poor. Um, at one point, I think I was over $3 million in debt. Not we had the business plan and the investors weren't yeah, going to yeah. get. No, no, no. I owed people money. I owed every artist. I owed the landlord. I owed the electric. I, I lost everything. I owned, I lost my house, my car, my apartment, I was homeless, I owed the IRS. So it was a rough period. Mm -hmm. We made it through, iTunes launched, Richard and I sold a big chunk of the company so that we could get growth capital because that's when we needed it. Mm -hmm. um, 2015, Sony bought the, the whole company so they bought out all, all remaining shares. And I've had I have nothing in it anymore, and the orchard is amazing, and and I love the journey. But there was a point then where I where I was there in December of uh, 2018 in New York, and it was the orchard's all hands meeting. So it meant people from 40 different offices at the orchard show up in New York mm -hmm. from 40 different countries. They're giving territory presentations, tech giving their presentation oh we launched a new analytics platform you know all the good stuff the the finance you know oh it's going to do a billion in revenue like all amazing and in that moment i turned to richard Goderer, my partner and said i think i'm done wow. i think i'm done how did that feel amazing yeah. <laughs> it really felt like i'm done there's nothing more to Took it, took it as far as, yeah. as it could. I might have taken it further than I had to. I mean, I could have probably stepped away earlier. But at that moment, I was certain I'm done. And, and in a happy done, not like yeah, 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 fed totally, up, totally, I can't totally, take it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like, wow. But there's nothing more I can give to the organization. Mm. It runs perfectly fine without me. There's a great CEO and COO, and it runs amazing. They didn't need me anymore. Considering... The Orchard was a wholly independent company working with independent artists and then independent labels. 
and then became part of a major network and is now wholly owned by a major and you are working with a major now. Um, from your opinion, is there that much difference with, you know, with the two ethoses? Is, should should up-and-coming artists be afraid of majors versus indies? Should they be seeking out, you know, what's... In, in one way, it's a, it's a, it's a pointless distinction, mm -hmm. in one way, because they've always been part of an ecosystem. Yeah. Always, 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 always. And independent labels would distribute their records through majors, or artists would start on an indie and move up to a major. Mm -hmm. And it's always been part of an ecosystem. But we're in 2019, and the truth of the matter is, if you want to hit, you better be on a major record company. Right. There's, or through one of their independent that they own, you know, yeah. like the, the Orchard is owned by Sony. The if you're not, your chances of success is, well, what's what's close to I'm trying to think what's close to zero you know point zero zero something about as much as you get from a stream from Spotify. yeah about what you get <laughs> from a single stream it's and somebody will point to one or two artists that were truly independent some they say they're independent but I actually know that they run through the orchard or ADA or mm -hmm. you know these are owned by the majors yeah, or yeah. or you know Warner did their radio campaigns and and pay them for their recordings. Yeah. Like there's all this stuff that happens where the artist says they're really independent, but the truth is they're not. But there are a couple of cases of true independence. And going back to when I was saying, you know, there's 40,000 tracks a day and you know, you might as well play the lotto. Um, that's kind of it. Like if you're, if you're on a major record label, starting at the very top, there's three majors. If you're on one of the majors, the hit to shit ratio, one in 10 or one in 20. They sign 20 artists, one of them's gonna be a hit. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the others and then go, oh right, they're the ones doing the 39,000 songs a day, not the 40,000. Mm -hmm. They're probably doing 39,500. They're doing almost all the releases are coming from the independents mm -hmm. that's stuffing the system. Yeah. Their hit to shit ratio is probably closer to one in a million. Right. One in a million. Yeah, and that starts... So you can say, yeah, I want to be on an independent, and I have nothing wrong with the independents. I support the independents. If you want to have a hit, the chances of it coming from the independents is very small. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. doesn't mean you shouldn't whatever. But, but if you want to hit, you got to go where hits are. Do you, how much new music do you listen to? Me? Yeah. Do you seek out new, no. new music? I avoid new music. This is what's happened with so much music. Uh, it makes me avoid it. Because I've gradually, I've started to realise it's just too hard to, yeah. to kind of keep up with. So the, the A&R scouts out there and those people that do that, I'm kind of, kind of fair play to, yeah. to you all. I, I don't do that. And luckily it's not also not my business role, so I don't have to, but... But just as a as a as a normal regular consumer, no, I I, I don't want more stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't want more. But if enough people tell me you've got to hear this, this right. is awesome from trusted sources, I absolutely check it out. For the from a general public perspective, where do you think the trusted sources are? So not from a music business perspective. But. Um, well, I don't think they're what we look at as today's influencers. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but are there any kind of blogs or channels out there that you think I don't think are doing any, something quite interesting or saying something? No, I don't think anyone's cracked it yet. No. I don't think anyone's cracked it. I don't think there's a single source of truth right now. By the way, that goes for anything. It's all fake news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There just isn't a single source of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be, and I'm not, and I don't want to go backwards. I am definitely not somebody that says it was better the old way. I don't think it was better the old way. I don't think you get a, a job as chief innovation officer <laughs> yeah. or chief innovation manager uh, uh, if you if you want to go backwards. Yeah, I definitely don't want to go. You know, people are like, oh, it's better on this vinyl, CD, radio. No, it wasn't better. I definitely don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I talk to people about radio all the time. I mean, I was last year at the, was it last year or this year? I don't know, recently at the International Radio Festival and all the, you know, BBC's there. Like yep. all the big radio stations are there. And I have no idea why they asked me to speak because they know who I am. And I was like, radio's dead. And I was like, anyone in the audience under 40? And a bunch of people put up their hand. I'm like, get the fuck out of the room and save yourself. Like, people are delusional. Radio. Like, explain to a teenager that if you don't like the song you're listening to, wait three minutes because maybe you like the one after it. And if you don't like that one, wait again. Mm. Like, what world do we live in that somebody's going to want to do this? Yes, very true. Fuck that. I mean, and it goes on and on. So, no, I don't want to go backwards. Mm-hmm. I did like that radio turned me on to things growing up, but I would never want that in today's world. But well, that's world, where the that. kind of we, we've shifted from the radio playlist to the streaming service playlist. That sort of thing. You know, other people curating yeah. a list of things saying, hey, you might like this. And it's really forcing you to listen to all of it. Correct. And it truly is a list where you just kind of go down the list, listen, 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 listen. But if I'm being truly honest, I'm not sure that that works. Okay. I'm Which, not sure that there's any evidence that that's what's driving people to listen. And I think it still has to have some groundswell to it. What in the, in the real world yeah. from what yeah. things like live music and Oh, and not live like music. I don't think anyone gets turned on to something new live. Okay. They used to. That was a different era. But I don't know anyone that says, I'm just going to buy a ticket to go see a bunch of music from artists I've never heard of. I'm going to pay 10 pounds, $20. Okay. I, I don't, I've never met that person I that just there's... walks into a club and pays a cover charge to get turned on to something. See, Those I, days I are... think that there's, there's more of a push now to try and get that back. It's not As coming in, back. In, in the... In pro- pro- definitely in places outside of London. I don't think it's coming back. I don't think that, that, that you can get most people to leave their house on a Tuesday night at 9.30 and say, I know Stranger Things, Netflix is out, but go spend a tenner on a Tuesday night to watch a bunch of bands you never heard of. And they may be good, they may mm-hmm. be shit. That, that, that world is over. Kind of neatly brings us on to 
the new role, the role that you took on, took on this year, looking at what is in the future? Yes, I, is that kind of the main Yeah, so my, main my new role is the Chief um, Innovation Officer mm -hmm. at Warner Music Group. Yes. And the new part is not looking out into the future, what's next, that's mm -hmm. what I've been doing my whole career. Yeah, yeah. It's now just telling people at Warner <laughs> right. what I believe okay. and try and tr you know it. My 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 role is is has many facets, but the overarching is to to explain what's coming next. Work with the executive team in place at Warner mm -hmm. to actually do things today that won't impact them at all. Okay. until a few years from now and then thank themselves later for doing it right but, you know kind of like what we said about it was no secret that the web was coming mm -hmm. there was no secret so when I look out into the world and I go VR AR artificial intelligence um, blockchain MMOs like Fortnite yep there is there is no secret where things are going no secret I can look at blockchain, I can see what's happening in other industries um, with it and know it's going to be applied to the music industry. Mm -hmm. So let's just start doing it now so we're in place when everything's ready. And are those those key four things that you just mentioned, the kind of the augmented virtual reality from a kind of performance? No, level? definitely not. Okay, interesting. In an MMO, yes. In VR, no. So, the the last thing I want to do is put on my Oculus Quest VR headset and watch a gig. Right. I mean, I want the V, not the R. I want the virtual, not the reality. But from again, from a performance level, is would you suggest that VR is the natural successor to you know to total immersive music? So you don't, um, you're not necessarily watching the gig, but you know your album that you would just put on a set of speakers now comes as something that's a bit more... Yes and no, but even that you couch it in terms of an album of taking some old technology and an right. old construct, which was artificial, the album, mm -hmm. and dragging it into something new, I find odd. Okay. <laughs> that that's... I'm not trying to recreate the old. You know, like... So, so the Oculus Rift only just... Uh, the Oculus Quest only just came out, whatever, a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. And so I bought it right away. And it's the first um, completely untethered VR experience. So untethered means not only does it not have wires, it doesn't need a computer. You right. just go. Okay. As long as you have a Wi-Fi connection, so it's, you, it's a standalone right. device. And so the first thing I did was I downloaded a boxing game. Um, and you put on the headset and all of a sudden, you know, you look in front of your, the headset and you see your hands, but your hands are now with boxing gloves on. And that's no... You're holding a controller right. in each hand, but big headset. So again, technology is yeah, not yeah, where yeah. it's going to be, but big bulky headset mm -hmm. and, and these controllers. But, you know, you look down, you see boxing gloves and big bicep, you know, so it's nice muscles. You look down, you see boxing trunks and, mm -hmm. and, and shoes and but what's most startling is you're looking at a big fucking scary guy right in the eye 
who is giving you an evil look. And all of a sudden, touch gloves, you're boxing. And all of a sudden, you're ducking and diving and dancing around the room and trying to get a punch in because he's throwing punches at you and you're not, you know, you, you're not, the key is, you're not experiencing boxing in VR. Mm -hmm. You're not controlling boxing in VR. You're boxing. Right. <laughs> you are boxing. And by the way, you are working up a sweat. You're yeah, exhausted. Yeah. The next day, I was so sore. My muscles from, from that. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the boxing industry decided to create a boxing experience in VR, they would have been like, we can go to classic fights like Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson or give you different places. You can view the boxing match. You can view it from over the top. You can be in the center of the ring. You can watch it or, you know, like... Yeah, but yeah. that's the music industry. Okay. You know, we can make a gig. You can be on the stage, side of the stage. No, people don't want to experience it. They don't want to control it. They want to be it. They want to... Okay. To... This is all part of a long, slow, 25 or 30 year movement of participatory activities. Before, before the web, people merely consumed. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we looked at photographs that photographers took, we read magazines and newspapers, we listened to music, we just consumed. And when the web launched, little by little, we said, we didn't want to just consume, we wanted to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. I want to upload my own photo. I want to write my own story. I want to do my own video. Mm -hmm. I don't, yes, I'll still look at other people's, but I want to be part of it. I don't want to just suck it all in. And we're never going back to the world where somebody can just put something out and we're just going to sit back and consume it all. Everybody's going to be a creator. We already are. And a participator and a consumer all at the same time. Listen, when I said this in the 90s, we did the first, Richard and I did the first test in the late 90s in Finland with Nokia and, remember Nokia? I do. <laughs> Still the best phones I've ever had. They were great. They had long <laughs> battery life. Yeah. Um, so, and Sonera, so Nokia and Sonera, which was the, the operator, the mobile operator in Finland, and us, and we did, we were running trials for the first download over a mobile network. And we were trying to explain to people, like this is how people will be consuming music over their mobile devices. And they're like, what? Yeah, your telephone. And people like, couldn't get their heads around that because to them, a telephone was still something you picked up you know, mm -hmm. not something you carried in your pocket, yeah. something with a wire, you know, and a receiver and you push buttons. Um, and, and we were saying, not only will you consume this way, you'll be creating on this. <laughs> People were like, what? Like they could not get mm -hmm. their heads around this. And I am saying we're not, we're, this is a long, slow path. This is where we're moving and we're, con we're still on this path of us creating. But sometimes when you look at the technology today, it's very hard to wrap your head around, but why? Is a big chunk of what you're doing now trying to change people's mindsets more than anything else? It's trying to say, because I, I, like that little conversation we had, I started talking about virtual reality and augmented reality in a very different way than what, how you're imagining it and thinking about right. it. And is that kind of a big chunk of, you're trying to have, say, you're kind of there, but you're not all right. the way with me yet. So, so think about things like, all right, 
So let's connect some dots. So there's a great company in Nashville called Artifon, mm-hmm. A-R-T-I-P-H-O-N, and they made an AI-powered instrument, artificially, artificial intelligence instrument. And think of it like, I don't know, was that like one meter long kind of square rectangle box. If you lay it flat on a table, you can play it like a keyboard. Mm-hmm. If you hold it up, you can play it like a guitar. You put it on your shoulder, you can do it like a violin. Okay. You can pound on it like a drum. You can change whatever instrument sound you want. And what it does is the AI makes sure that you never hit a wrong note. So okay. if you strum something, you put your hands on, there's no frets, but if you just put your hand on it and strum, it'll be a chord. Right. If you move your hand into a different position, it'll strum another chord. And it'll decide what that chord it, is. It kind of figures you moved about this far, this, you moved your hand this many inches right. closer to your other hand, so it should be higher <laughs> okay. notes. And these are lower notes as it moves yeah. farther away. And, and so, so think of it this way. Imagine that now you're listening to music and you want to play along with it. You can now play along with any song you're listening to without ever taking a lesson in your life. You can now play guitar, piano, or any other instrument because you'll never hit a bad note. That's the thing I think worries a lot of musicians. Well, it should, because there's nothing so special about it. Anyone can play an instrument. Put in your time. Go back and read the Miles Davis autobiography. He was going to Juilliard to be a classical musician because he was that good. And then he realized, but that doesn't make me an artist. I'm just like working on a factory line. I'm just learning to place these notes really fast. That's all I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Somebody else was creative hundreds of years ago called Mozart, but I'm not creative. I'm just like a robot. He thought of himself as a robot. Mm -hmm. Anyone can do this. A machine can do it. Guess what? A machine can actually do it. So, so, so now go back to this VR experience. So now I strap on the VR experience. I'm actually on stage with my favorite band. I strapped on my Artifon instrument and I'm playing with them. I'm literally jamming mm-hmm. along and I'm listening to Stairway to Heaven. I'm like, hey, Jimmy, I got this lead. Hold on. And you play the lick any way you want. Mm-hmm. And it won't hit a wrong note. It'll play different notes because wherever your hand may be, but you'll be jamming. And that's your experience of the music, and it's the yeah. experience that's the key thing. Yeah, because I think also we live in a world where everything has become so digitized that we're actually losing the 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 random interaction with strangers. I mean, in today's world, like I don't go to the post office to send a letter. Mm -hmm. I don't go to a travel agent to book my flights. I don't stand in a queue at the bank. I have an app for that. Like, Like people don't go and date anymore. They swipe left and right. God forbid somebody should actually walk up to a stranger and say, hey, I kind of fancy you. They'd, they'd give you the, you know, me too. Like, no, stay away. The only way I engage if somebody yeah. swipes left or right. And I, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying this is. Mm-hmm. So I think we're actually going to start looking for 
not just these digital experiences, but here's a great opportunity because we want to connect with people. The reason a, a, a Coachella or a Glastonbury sells out without even announcing the artist is because people want to go and commune with 100,000 other people and actually bump into strangers. And that's where things like the fortnights and those sorts of things come in as well from a, on a digital perspective. Absolutely, people connect. My last question, the last thing that I wanted to get your take on was, what is the value of music now? I think we eroded the value when we put a price on it. That when we said a, a download was 99 cents, it sounds like the cost of a pack of chewing gum. Mm -hmm. When you ask people what does music mean to them, you know, it's powerful. It, it's funny, whatever you kind of listen to as a teenager, you know, in your early 20s, that sticks with you your whole life. Mm -hmm. That has so much meaning. There's, so so I, think, I think we need to get to the point where, and why I like the access model is, you can't own it or buy it. There's no price you can put on this stuff. Mm -hmm. what, you can't put a price on David Bowie or Pink Floyd or the Beatles. Like, you can't own it. But you can, you know, you can't own the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm but you can absolutely go see it. Mm -hmm. You can absolutely pay some money to have access to view it. And you can't own music. Again, we trick people. You never owned it. You didn't own it. You never owned it. It was always an access model. When you bought a CD, it gave you access to listen to the music whenever you wanted, as long as you had the CD with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an, always an access model. But I guess, I guess the, the key thing there is that idea of the CD was 10, 12, 15 pounds, a CD, and now it's 10, 12, 15 pounds a month. Well, which, which is, is... Which is the kind of the, where the, I guess the erosions come from. I don't think there's any erosion. Okay. One, I don't think, well, one, the customer pays more in this model, because the average consumer at the well, height yeah, of the yeah, yeah. CD business was only, in this country, I think it was 1.8 CDs a year. Yeah. Let's say two CDs a year. I kind of I put myself in a weird in the bracket because I was the I was the weirdo that bought. You, yeah, but you're the outlier. <laughs> yeah. You're the outlier. Yeah. But most people were, were were not spending 120 a year on CDs. They were spending 20 mm -hmm. a year. So we we've actually getting more out of the customer um, from the music industry. Whatever you say about the CD and the, the revenue it generated, the costs were fucking enormous. The manufacturing, the yeah. shipping, the, oh my God, what an inefficient system. And so all, all that, I don't care if the music industry is smaller in terms of gross numbers, the margins are so much better. We're, we're, we're quite a healthy business now. Mm -hmm. And those jobs that left are people that were working in warehouses and walking in, you have to have people all in every town to walk into retail stores to make sure that everything was in the shelves and mm -hmm. you know go around with clipboards and write things down like this. That was a terrible world. So this access model is, it fits much nicer. 
The big thing that we lost, though, is gifting. That was a big driver of CD sales. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because we always think the big driver was people were, were so passionate about music, but it was really like, what am I going to get my dad for Father's Day? <laughs> get you him know. a CD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the, the reason fourth quarter was so big was not because people love music more in cold weather. It was because Christmas. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't think that the value has has dropped or, or it's just changed or maybe we need to find different yeah because if you ask the consumer the value the value of music is you can't put a price on it it's in the, when you know the the song they had their first kiss to or fell in love or whatever the first anything with music it's special it's part of your life as a kid um so no, I don't think there's any issue with that. I think the value of it has has retained. What I what I'd like is more artists having a place in culture. There was a great period of the late '60s and early '70s when you know artists wanted to change the world, mm -hmm. and what better opportunity than today with Everything climate change, <laughs> politics. You know, this is the time to, to step up and have a voice, but you have to be a, an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. You got to, or, or you at least have to be a great performer. I would like some of these bigger artists, the more popular ones, to step up and make a change because I think they have much more power than, than they realize. They're, 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 more, they're worried about the consequences of taking a stand, but I think... The key is if you take a stand, you'll actually realize that more people will back you. Amazing. Thank you so much for, You're for very talking welcome. to me this afternoon. <laughs> Massive thank you to Scott as I said at the beginning, for finding the time to meet with me. He's a very busy guy, so I really, really do appreciate him finding the time. He's been on a number of other podcasts, um, and there's a lot written about them, and he does a lot of writing himself anyway, so do check him out. It's a very, very interesting guy uh, with some really, really interesting ideas, uh, and as he said in the podcast, his, his role is designed that the big changes afoot we shouldn't even notice so really fascinating stuff something that we didn't get the opportunity to talk about was some of his external outside of the music industry endeavors one of which is cyborgnest.net i am not going to say anything other than it's called cyborg nest so if you're interested just by the name then go to cyborgnest.net and check out what he's having a bit of a play with. If you would like to get in touch with me at the podcast, if you'd like to reach out to any of the guests, please do so via the email address behindthebusinesspod at gmail.com or via Instagram at behindthebusinesspod or via Twitter at Danny Champion. Uh, hopefully I've got some fun stuff coming up, so... Do keep an eye on Facebook, do keep an eye on Instagram and do keep an eye on 
YouTube as well. But for now, that's enough from me. And you will hear from me next time.